Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to look at our gospel text in Luke today, so if you want to keep your bulletins open to there, that'd be great. Also, when I go through the verses, they will appear, of course, behind me on the screen. But at the start of our text today, some people who were around Jesus were telling him about how Pilate had taken some Galileans, killed them, and taken their blood and mixed it on the altar with their sacrifices. Now, maybe Pilate did this to teach them a lesson. Maybe to mock their God and say, let's see what your God will do in response to this. But whatever the reason of Pilate, the people's concern seemed to be centered around two things. And based on the context, they didn't come to mourn for actual people who had died, but they were more concerned about themselves. What sin did these people commit, Jesus, that such a horrible sin or thing would happen to them? And secondly, what are you going to do about it, Jesus? And Jesus responds by saying that it was not their sin that caused them to die, nor was it even the sin of the 18 who had a tower fall on them. This didn't happen to them because they were sinners. See, Jesus is addressing an issue that in another place, specifically John chapter 9, he had already talked about a man who had been born blind. You'll recall this story. Do you remember it? There was a man who had been born blind, and Jesus' disciples look at him and say, Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it a sin that he did or a sin that his parents had done? And so Jesus explains that they are looking in the wrong place, as if there is some kind of cause and effect going on here. The truth is, friends, our world is broken. Look around. But if you open your eyes you will see that the brokenness of the world is not greater than the grace and the power of God. Jesus points out to us and to the disciples that people have a tendency to always be trying to find the blame and not the grace. Jesus says what has happened to him, what has happened to them is not greater than the grace of our God. We live in a fallen world where horrible things happen. But just because they happen does not mean that this is the will of God. And it is certainly not the desire of God. C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain is a great read to help address this problem of why does evil happen then? And if you have the time, I highly recommend reading it. It's only a little over 100 pages and is definitely worth it. And if you can't find the time to read it and you'd like to discuss this issue of pain further, you can, of course, shoot me an email and I'll be happy to meet up with you and talk about pain, suffering, and where is the presence of God when it happens. Jesus reminds us, his listeners, that the desire of God, friends, is for even in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of joy, no matter what is going on, that we would turn to Him, turn towards God, and be saved. And specifically in this instant, Jesus says, repent because at any minute your life may end. Whether you are under Roman rule or you rule yourself, your body can be killed, but your soul will last forever. So turn to God and live 
forever with him. So he tells them this answer. And in the middle of this, Jesus is traveling through Samaria. Now, if you're not familiar with Samaria, it's a place that is very familiar with what it means to suffer. Samaria is very familiar with being conquered. It is a place that conquering nations, especially Assyria, trying to take over, had a little thing where they would come in and dump all of its conquered people right there in that Samaria in an effort to breed out any national sentiment that there might be. Samaria was a place that was always filled with violence and bloodshed. And so here Jesus is addressing suffering, addressing pain, and he drops a little parable out of nowhere, kind of like Beyonce drops her album. Schultz, as you know what I'm talking about. Now, a quick reminder before we dive into this parable today. Why does Jesus teach in parables? Jesus is not just a word to be studied. He's not just a word to be discussed. Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the living word, God's word that became human and lived in an actual time with actual people eating real meals and doing real things. And in order to respond to this word, this voice, this word made flesh, our role is to listen and respond in our actual homes and workplaces with the people that we know, our family, our friends, our co-workers, person to person, one to another in relationship. That's real life, engaged in real life with Jesus. And so Jesus teaches in parables because he is using words that cut through our flesh and rest deep in our minds and in our hearts and move us to participation. Because Jesus' teaching in parables is all about getting involved with and participating with what God is doing. He is getting us in and keeping us alert to how it is we are to love, talk, and walk with the Lord and walk with one another when he is teaching in parables. And there's a danger, of course, to thinking that there is only one response to a parable or a one-size-fits-all type of thing. These parables, which are pulling us into participation, are also helping us understand what the kingdom of God is, who the nature of God is. They are stories to help us understand and to respond. Sometimes we're called to respond quickly and decisively, other times slowly, sometimes somewhere in the middle. But there's another side of parables. There's not just the understanding of who God is, understanding of the kingdom of God and the pulling you into the story so that you will participate with it moving forward. There's also what we bring to the story. We have our own understandings, our own experiences, our own histories. For example, next week we will look at the prodigal son. And the teacher took that parable to very different areas of the world and asked them, what was the cause of the young son's downfall? Here in America, they said it was his reckless spending. He should have diversified, should have kept the property, not sold it. They took it to Russia and the response was reckless spending? No way, there's nothing wrong with that. If you inherit a ton of money, you spend it. The problem in the story was famine took it down into Africa, and they said it wasn't the famine, that always happens, it wasn't the reckless spending, it was the fact that the community didn't help the young boy. 
point is, when you are reading a parable, you are coming into it with your experiences, your understanding. And Jesus is teaching you something new, and the two merge together. It speaks to us differently. So as we look at this parable today, friends, there might be something that is in your life that you need to cut down immediately. Remove it and be done with it. But there may also be something that you should be waiting on. And I pray that as we look at this parable today, you leave here praying and seeking out what is the Lord's desire for how you are to respond to the Word of God that engages you today. And more importantly, you are to leave without a doubt that His desire for you is real. That He does not give up on you. So let's take a look at this parable. Then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, went to look for fruit, didn't find any. So he said to the man taking care of the vineyard, three years, three years I've been coming, not a single fruit, haven't found any, cut it down, why should it use up the soil? It's a great question. Why should it use up the soil? The fig tree has one purpose to produce figs. And yet after three years, the farmer is yet to get what he is supposed to have coming to him. So he provides a very simple solution. Cut it down, plant something else. Let's use this space to do something that is actually going to produce and get the results that we want. Strange thing, maybe not, but it's usually simpler to do things than to not do things. Here's what I mean. When you want to get something done, is it easier to take quick and decisive action on your own and do it yourselves or to include your significant other? Hands up or by yourself. <laughs> Whether that's finishing the report, battling the enemy, cleaning the room. How hard is it? Move over. I got this. I'll do it on my own so that it's done right, so that it's done faster, so it's done better in our own opinion. And then it will be over. No waiting, no discussion, boom. Easy, quick work of a problem. Got a fig tree that's not producing? Cut her down and it'll be gone. That is typically our way of solving problems. Cutting them down. And taken to the very extreme, violence chops down things very fast. It started with Cain and is still around today. That killing is the predominant method of choice to making our problems go away. If we don't like someone or something, then let's cut it down. And then we'll find someone or something that will give us what we want. Easy, quick, and efficient. Works for Christians too. Come across something that offends us. Some person who is, dare I say, useless to the kingdom of God. Lose patience, verbally or physically, remove them. Chop it down. Get rid of the offender with the offense. Then comes this response. 
interrupting the farmer in his anger, in his lack of patience, in his ready to give up, we hear a very quiet voice say, hold on, wait. Leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it, and it'll bear fruit next year fine, but if not, then yeah, cut it down. A quiet voice that says, not so fast, don't chop it down, fertilize it. Now, I don't know a lot about farming, but I do know that fertilizer is manure. Manure is not a quick fix. It has no immediate results. It's going to take a long time to see if there is even a difference going to be made. And there's not really even a guarantee that it will work. And yet the one who is down in it, the one who has come down to be a part, believes it'll be worth it, worth the time, worth the energy, worth the tree, even if the results take almost a year again. If you're after results, cutting down a tree will work just fine. Because spreading fertilizer, manure around, that's not such an adrenaline rush. There's not a big feeling of accomplishment as I spread the fertilizer around the yard today. Not very glamorous, not wonderfully smelling, but it is a slow solution. And so one of the things we get to understand about our Lord, our Lord who has come down to us, is that he is not in a hurry. In fact, you have probably heard it through your reading of scripture, through your singing of songs, wait on the Lord, wait. That's not advice that we regularly like to follow. Not when we live in a time of no waiting, instant gratification. It's been said that the greatest temptation of our time is impatience. The refusal to wait. The refusal to undergo suffering. Because somehow waiting has become synonymous with doing nothing. And that is a mistake. Because when we are waiting on the Lord, when we are enduring, we are not saying that everything is okay, I'm just chilling here. We're not even saying that we're not going to do anything about it. What we are saying when we wait in the Lord is that we will not respond in violence and we will not respond in apathy. Because there is a difference between apathy and waiting on the Lord. Our Father has brought the restorative hope, the ability to bring us and make us anew in Christ Jesus. And that hope lives in us and manifests, manifests itself in a way that is not about cutting things down, but about turning things over, getting into the soil and turning it over. Learning how in our own lives that instead of cutting things down, we need to turn them over to God. To learn to lean into Him, to trust in Him, to find rest in Him and not in ourself. Turning things over is about embracing the forgiveness that He has spoken over us. Instead of letting what the sin that we have done rot and fester inside of us. It's about taking that forgiveness, that gentleness and faithfulness of God and then spreading it to others. 
We embrace being patient when we learn to show it to the people around us instead of just cutting them down. There is no doubt that God is patient with us. That God is not slow like some would describe slow, but He is patiently waiting for us to turn to Him, to repent and come back to Him. He is gently but firmly guiding us, holding back and waiting. Someone once said to me, how much pain and suffering would you endure if it meant that one more person could be saved? What a powerful image that is. How long would you suffer in your current state, deal with your brokenness, your sickness, the pain that you are experiencing, knowing that if you could hold on just a few more days, a few more years, others will have an opportunity to repent and turn back to the Lord. I think this parable reminds us that we need to repent and turn to God because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And maybe, just maybe, we don't have to cut things down because waiting for God is not done out of fear but out of the belief and the confidence that a bruised reed he does not break, a smoldering wick he does not snuff out. And when we embrace his patience, when we rest in his mercy and his unfailing love, you are going to find that you will be surrounded by quite a bit of fertilizer, manure. You work that metaphor out in your own mind. But friends, we must show patience with the tough and dirty things of life. We must be willing, like our Lord, to endure, to show patience to our spouse, to our children, to our quick, to our coworkers, and move away from quick, fast food grace and into real love. Not giving up knowing that at the right time, a harvest will be reaped. So this week, I would ask you to maybe put down the ax and to pick up the fertilizer instead. There is no better place for that than the Psalms. Those are prayers that are worked deep into the soil of your life. Go to them, read them, pray them, sing them. Know that you are not alone in what you experience and what you suffer. That others have gone through it as well. And as you pray and live, you will find that whilst others are experiencing the same things, none of us are ever alone because Jesus Christ is with us always. He does not want to see you fail. Is not bringing temptation and evil into your life so that when you mess up, he's right there to chop you down. Instead, he's there to be with you, to give you what you need, to rest with you, to love you, 
to be near you. So turn, turn these things, turn them over and give them to God. Experience His love, His grace, His peace.